Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, September 12th. The final Grand Slam of the 2022 season is now officially in the books. And folks, the future is here. Of course, we already knew Iga Sviantek was going to be one of the game's great champions. God knows she already has been through the early stages of her career, but Sviantek capturing a third major title with her win in New York. She probably played her best tennis of the two weeks in her final, a 6-2-7-6 victory. Six is how you say that word. Over Own Jabur. of course, on Sunday, we got the championship final we deserved on the men's side and in the end it's time to put the crown on his head Carlos Alcaraz capturing the first major title of his career ascending to become the youngest male player in history to become the world number one we've got plenty of storylines as such to discuss on today's show which we are recording live on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel something we hope to do more not only down the home stretch of of this 2022 season, but quite more frequently throughout the course of 2023. And if we're going to go live on YouTube, I got to bring in our prettiest faces here at Crack Rackets. And some of you watching this show see the D with a king on my shirt. You may think it stands for our friends at DraftKings when in fact it stands for the King David joining us today. Of course, you know his work as an editorial producer for all things tennis.com and tennis channel at this point, essentially a co-host of this mini break podcast feed. And if you weren't reading his fantastic work for tennis.com during the 2022 U.S. Open, quite frankly, you weren't doing the year's final Grand Slam right. It is our friend David Kane joining us to help break down everything that happened on Championship Weekend in New York. DK, welcome back to the show for a man who just did two weeks at the slams, again, you look surprisingly well-rested, which gets back to full circle. Had to bring in our prettiest faces here. It's good to see yours, my friend. I really wanted to relax and refresh in these 48 hours waiting for my return to camera, but I've actually been kind of sick for the last 72 hours. So I'm, I've recovered just in time. I, I shook off that that Roland Garros hangover in time for you, my friend. I'm really, I'm really glad to be here, though. <laughs> oh, it's great to have you. Yeah, I came back from our Cleveland-Cincinnati run, and I was just like, something's off. Like, three days of humans. Like, you can just tell the immune system was like, since August 2020, Alex, you really haven't done this. And so I can only imagine when you're in New York for an event that sets the record for for most people attending the U.S. Open in history, we learned that stat today. I think it was north. 
I want to say of 400,000, I believe was the final metric. And I'll, I'll go double check that as we're talking here in terms of total people in the gate throughout the course of the two weeks. But DK, you were on the ground. Let's just start there before we even get into our finals preview. Was the perceived reception, perceived popularity and enthusiasm at this 2022 U.S. Open from afar. Was that the reality? There was a lot of excitement on the grounds, to be sure. I mean, it really felt like after two years of sort of working our way back to normal, we we, we got it uh, and then some at the 2022 U.S. Open. You could tell from the first day there was just so much excitement on the grounds. And I felt that a lot of it obviously had to do with the impending evolution of our 23-time <laughs> Grand Slam champion, Serena Williams. But even when she did exit in the third round to uh, Isla Tomljanovic, the crowds kept coming. And it's a testament not only to the amount of people that Serena brought into this sport, but the amount of people who have fallen in love with the sport, irrespective of whether she is continuing to be in the game or not. I mean, it's another testament to her legacy that she managed to convert these people, not just into Serena fans, but into tennis fans. So I definitely hold her in uh, in high regard in that respect. But it's true from, from the first day to the last, it was just a lot of engaged excitement, reverence. Even on Arthur Ashe Stadium, you could tell it's often quite difficult to get the crowd to be quiet because there's a lot of distractions and because of the way that the roof is is situated, it, it could uh, lend itself to a lot of din, but it was really just a lot of reverent respect for what was going on on the court. And, and uh, the players really rewarded that with some really fantastic play in the end. I was right and wrong. So I was right. It was north of 400,000. Shout out to me. The number was 776,120 yes. <laughs> people. That's how many showed up at the U.S. Open this year, which beats the record of 737 or just south of 738,000 set in 2019. Tennis is back, baby. Like it, it, no, you could tell. And obviously the Serena matches not only drew a full crowd, but drew a star-studded crowd. And I wanted to offer this take. I had no one to offer it to. I should have thrown it in our group chat uh, during the course of the two weeks. Do you think the only person, do you think like when Serena Williams lost, did Ben Stiller quietly fist pump? So he was like, thank God, I can just go back to being the only famous person here. And like, I can just go back to doing my thing. Like I'm sick of showing up to my president's box and, you know, this person's here and that person's there. Like, I just want to be the only famous person here. I feel like he was like, thank God that's over. But, you know, again, the, the crowds, even the limited number that stayed for the 2 a.m. thriller that was Sinner Alcaraz, it was an enthusiastic 2 a.m., you know, Wednesday night crowd or whatever that was. And obviously, Francis Tiafo is going to work any crowd well. But to see the way the crowd responded to him and yet still remain enthusiastic about Alcaraz, to see the crowd's reaction to everything that was Iga versus Sabalenka. Dare I say, if you're to grade this U.S. Open crowd, I think for the first time in a while, they might get, I don't know about an A+. Plus, I would say somewhere between the 91 to 93 range. Like, I don't know if I'm ready to give you the solid 94A, but you might sneak into the 93. Yeah, definitely. I think, like I said, they were they were engaged. They were into it. They were respectful of, of, of the most part, respectful of both opponents, you know, really rewarded the the stellar play with, with, the, with the noise and the cheering that it deserved. And yeah, I, I think of the year, it's probably one of my favorite uh, crowds that we've gotten for, for this Grand Slam season, for sure. 
Yeah, it, it was a fun event. And obviously, again, we spent all tournament long recapping every day of the action. So if for some reason you're wondering what happened on day six, head on over to our mini break <laughs> podcast feed. You can go check the recap of day six of any day you are looking for. But the two days we've yet to recap are the two days I want to focus on here. Day 13, day 14, women's singles final, men's singles final. Les, do you have strong takes on Rom Salisbury? You know, Rajiv Rampras. I know that's a that's a big take in the tennis community. Um, Krachikova, Sinyakova, shout out, Golden Slam completed. I think they're the first team in WTA doubles history to do that. Before we get into the juicy stuff, any doubles notes you'd like to add? No, I mean, obviously, I want to give a shout out to Taylor Townsend, which she was able to do in the women's tournament and as close as she got to the women's doubles title. Obviously, what Krechkova and Siniakova have done through an illustrious career uh, goes without saying. But obviously, I think the story of of that match was what Taylor Townsend was able to do. And, you know, the interaction between her and Patrick McEnroe during the trophy ceremony, Patrick, you know, not notoriously oversaw the USDA player development's decision to uh, withdraw uh, Taylor's uh 2012 U.S. Open wildcard, hoping to get her in better shape and better fitness and obviously all of the fallout um, from that debacle and, you know, talking about how she earned her way to be there and everyone can see it. Yeah. Everyone. And um, <laughs> and she looked phenomenal for what it's worth in the, in the blue cat suit that she was wearing all week and came back from having a baby, looks better than ever, stronger than ever, just mentally tougher than ever. And I think that there's there's really going to be a phenomenal next chapter for Taylor in the next 12 months, both in singles and doubles. She's only 26. I mean, it's crazy to think that way because we've been talking about her for well over a decade. And I think, yeah, for at least for the doubles, she was definitely my story for sure. Taylor Townsend, I think, is younger than I am, which like, so if we're calling her old, makes me sad. I humble brag here. I went on New Zealand radio earlier today. Yeah, that's right. Big crowd with the Kiwis. Um, And they asked me, they go, you know, Nick Kyrgios, is his window closed? Like, was 2022 his chance? And now his best is behind him. And I was like, Izzy, name of the show host. I was like, Izzy, Nick Kyrgios is six months older than me. Don't tell me my best is behind me. Like, that's devastating <laughs> news to find out. And so that was a, a, a funny perspective, certainly. But no, Townsend was exceptional. And we got a question about the American women that we'll get into later. But certainly Katie McNally, semifinals of the mixed doubles, semifinals of the women's doubles, regardless of what happens in her singles career, should be a part of the big events of the WTA Tour for the next decade and a half because she's not even 21 years old and she's already made two double slam finals as well. So it was fun. And I mean, look, Krachikva and Sinyakova won three or four junior slams as well. That's a generational team. And you know, I love generational anythings here at Crack Racket. So that's right, folks. We led the live show with six minutes on doubles. Don't tell me we don't appreciate the doubles here at Crack Rackets. But with that said, shout out as always to our friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest equipment. But with that said, DK, it's time to get into our two singles finals. And let's start with world number one, Iga Sviantek. Just the list of things Iga Sviantek, as a reminder, has accomplished this season. She's 57 and seven overall. That's an 89% win percentage. It was funny in high school, 89% were A's for us, but they didn't curve. Like it, that was part of the thing. So it's an A minus grade, is how I always see the 89. But 89 is pretty darn good for a someone who turned 21 years old in May. Of course, she is seven and zero 
in finals now this season, most WTA finals, most WTA titles of any player. She's the first player to win seven WTA titles in a single season since Serena Williams back in 2014. 10 and one versus the top 10, now 16 and one versus the top 20. We can get into all the superlatives and our favorite conversation of eliminated or not from the GOAT conversation. But let's just start with Iga's two weeks, and in particular, what made this final victory so impressive. And this is a stat we alluded to on our mini break podcast quite frequently before. I think Mary Jo Fernandez dropped it in the final as well. Through the first five matches that Iga Svantec played, she had had a negative winner to unforced error ratio in each of those matches. Now, she made over 60% of her first serves, which, you know, disguised some things But she wasn't playing great from the ground. First set, Sabalenka, same deal. Now, she was plus three over the final two sets against Sabalenka. She was plus three in set number two, even in set number three. I thought this first set against Owens, in particular, the way she goes up three love, the way after Owens manages to get the break back 4-3-2, pulls away in that first set. I thought that first set of tennis was the single best set we saw from Iga. And when I think looking back at this match, what was the theme? It's that Iga got off to an early lead and Owens was never able to catch up. That's my biggest takeaway when I look at this script is that, you know, A, Iga brings her best to start this match. And unfortunately that, and for Owens, that best was big enough to build a lead that ultimately turned out to be insurmountable. So what's your question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you agree? Well, okay. So I guess with Iga, I mean, first of all, I was going to tell you probably to rewatch anything we discussed after the Australian Open, because it feels like whatever we were talking about with Ash winning her third Grand Slam title may well be relevant upon Iga winning her third Grand Slam title and all the stats that may end up playing into that. But I think, you know, it was it really felt like doldrums for the top four seeds coming into this tournament. Most of them had telegraphed that they were not happy with the conditions that they were expecting to struggle and per- perhaps even pick up an injury the way that uh, Iga and Paula in particular were talking about the balls and, and, the, and the court speed. And, and yet uh, Iga really managed to play her way into the tournament, gave credit to the fact that the, uh, the weather certainly improved and, and cooled off in the second week and definitely probably slowed down conditions in the way that, you know, the, the high heat of the first week, uh, did not help things and maybe even uh, aided uh, Eula Niemeyer in the fourth round where it got very close to knocking out the world number one in that match. And I just think with the final is an entirely different conversation because I just think it goes down to the the, 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 the core differences between Svantec and Jabor as players. I mean, Svantec is just so reliable, so precise, so built on her patterns and her, mar- her high margins. And Jabor is sort of the opposite. Shabor is, you know, as much as she has improved and become more consistent, she is still very much her whole ethos is, you know, flying by the seat of her pants and, you know, improvising and going for going for winners as as she feels, you know, fit. And I think that ultimately is going to give her a tactical disadvantage because when you are under pressure in these tight moments, you saw Iga not make mistakes. And conversely, in that tiebreaker, when, you know, Owens did have that second set on her racket, I believe at 5-4 on serve in the tiebreaker, loses the next three points and it's Iga Slam. And you don't even remember the fact that Owens was very close to uh, to dragging that out into a final set. And I just think it goes, I don't want to say work ethic, but it's just sort of like the difference between working smart and working hard, perhaps. Owens has worked very hard to improve, but Iga continues to be probably the smartest worker in the field right now. And that's, that's rewarding her. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think when we look at back at this match, there were a couple of moments. And you're right. The big picture theme was it was just way harder for Owens to generate the sort of offense consistently she needed to put any sort of pressure on Iga. And that's what you have to do. And credit to Arena Sabalenka, credit to Nehemiah, as you alluded to as well. They seem to be the only two players in this tournament who have the sort of weapons that not only were they able to earn, you know, take advantage of the fact that Sviantec was offering them some free points throughout the course of the match, but they also had the weapons to earn their freedom uh, throughout the course of the way as well. There were really only two moments in this match where Jabir was capable of doing that. You look at the 1-3 return game that she played in that first set where she hits four ground stroke winners throughout the course of that game, takes a couple backhands up the line. It was just so difficult for her to duplicate that sort of aggression throughout the course of this match. And even, you know, again, set number two, uh, to Iga's credit, she comes out. It's a close first service game. Jabir certainly had her chances to go up an early one love hold, but Iga's able to get that break and build back a three love lead again after, you know, yes, I should say Jabir breaks for two, three in the first set, but then immediately gives that game, that break right back with a couple of loose errors. And now Sviantec's off and running. Similarly, you know, four, five, second set, Jabir has a set point. And I think the two, you know, points that she'll remember most from this match, or excuse me, not four, five, four all, where she had her break point chances. I mean, someone yells out in the crowd and she misses that backhand up the line. Yes, that was annoying. But that was a massive opportunity. 1540, same deal. She had a forehand. She had a forehand approach shot. She sprays it long. Like those were two massive opportunities for her to create the chance to serve the set. And again, her margins had to be so thin that she had to go for those balls and she had to make those shots. And I think looking at the stats from this match, Jabir, eight unforced errors in set number one, 25 unforced errors in set number two. She actually needed that. Like, she just wasn't going to win playing the passive tennis that she did in set number one. And she deserves some credit for recognizing that, raising her aggression. But it just raises the question, is anyone right now in the women's game capable of producing the sort of power tennis at a consistent enough clip to knock off Sviantec? Because, like, Sabalenka couldn't do it. Owens couldn't do it. Like that that's the question I'm left wondering, I guess, coming off of this slam, DK. I'm curious your thoughts. Well, I think with Sabalenka, we find ourselves in the situation that we really found ourselves in this time last year with Sabalenka. She was almost there. She's always almost there. And then it feels like something happens that then brings her even further back. And then she works her way back to where she was and then has another setback. I mean, whether it was the nerves, you know, playing Layla Fernandez in a, in a Grand Slam semifinal, where, whether it was her serve at the beginning of this season. And now she's finally worked the serve, hired Gavin McMillan, a noted performance coach, really changed the biomechanics on that serve. It looked a lot better. The serve did not let her down in the semifinal, it, the way it let Niemeyer down in the fourth round. Conversely, it was really the ground game and Sabalenka's sort of, I don't want to say paranoia, but just discomfort with this um with the consistency that Shvantec was providing in that third set and really forcing her to feel like she had to go for more and I, and obviously I think Sabalink in the press conference spoke about feeling just 
not as comfortable in these big matches just because she's had so few of them this season. This was really one of the first tournaments in the first couple of months where she has felt sort of back to herself and back to her best. And maybe if she had had a couple more weeks and months like this, she would have been a bit more ready to close that match out at serving, you know, at 4-3 in the final set. Certainly had that one on her racket as well. I think Sabalink is probably the only one who can provide the kind of significant firepower that can can knock back um because that's her game. I think Jabir still has so many other things going on in the game, and there's not there's not a tautness to, to Jabir's game. Whereas Sabalenka has one plan, and she's going for it, and and I think that creates less pressure if she's feeling comfortable. And I think for Jabir, there's still so many options for her, and I think she still needs to really drill down on some consistent patterns of play, some 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 consistent modes of aggression and defense where it's not feeling like. What do I do at this big point? Do I gun it? Do I go for the 90 mile an hour forehand winner or do I go do I go cross court? I just feel like there's still that level of doubt, you know, in a big match. And we're seeing it now twice in a row, Wimbledon and the US Open, you know, she had big chances at both of these and just was not able to really rely on any kind of consistency to get her over the finish line there. So I think that's that's going to be difficult. But looking at Svantec, I mean, at this point, she's got to feel extra confident. She managed to win on her quote unquote, you know, less preferred surface playing in her you know least preferred conditions and wins the title fairly convincingly. I mean, she certainly has to feel like there are a few people who can challenge her. But, you know, we said that about Ash Barty in January and see what happened in six weeks after that podcast. So um, <laughs> I guess we'll have to have an emergency one around uh, Halloween if she's if she has a, a surprise retirement. I don't think that'll happen, though. I think Eek is very competitive and very um, determined to to remain in that uh, hypothetical goat debate, whether she wants to be uh, oh, made aware that she's in that conversation still or not. Mm-hmm. And I want to get to that in a second. So hold that thought. But just on the Iga game style and, again, how effective it, it was against a variety of things, whether it was just the way Jess Pagula did not have a weapon to finish points against Iga with, the fact that Sabalenka could not replicate her power tennis consistently enough to break through Iga, the fact that the moment owned Jabir, she had about six slices in the first three games. And then you could tell she's like, nope, not doing that anymore because Iga got her feet set. She ran around the forehand, unleashes it. The most dangerous shot for Iga is her on the ad side of the court because if she has a backhand, you have no idea where that backhand's going to go. Cross, short angle, down the line. Her inside out, inside in forehand combination is just more effective than her do side forehand right now, at least on a faster surface. And like Jabir's like, nope, I can't play the drop shots. I can't play the short angles. I have to go early up the line. And to your point, it just makes, it leaves me thinking, all right, you have to play elite power tennis to beat Iga Sviantek. That's really it at this point. And I'm throwing out be, the Cornet not to interrupt, match though. Yeah, go ahead. but not no, to interrupt, please. but I just feel like that's not something that she should have determined after losing 12 of the first 14 points. I mean, I feel like she's played Iga enough to know that that's, she needed to play aggressive to start that match. I mean, that's, we saw who had the most success against Iga over the first six matches. It was the players who were really going for it. And so that's also surprising think, to me. But do you think the slices would have worked? They didn't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so you're saying she should have known that before she should have known yes. that in the, fr- okay. I, I think, the, I think the goal uh-huh. should have been to really press. I mean, I think we're seeing the way Iga hits the ball. She hits with such high margin is not going to make a lot of mistakes in a nervous, you know, mm-hmm. high pressure match. You know, it's a lot of risk, but, that's a lot in that in a way that is Jabor's game is to take risks. So in that way, she should almost be, feel comfortable taking that kind of risk from the first point. I mean, trying to like to dink it in a Grand Slam final, I don't think is going to 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 cut it with somebody who ha- who can match 
Jabor in that way for variety with the heavy spin. It's not like it's someone who has, you know, this sort of undurable technique that's going to break down with a slice. I mean, she's going to just come right over it with the top spin and that's what she was able to do. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's, that was, that's strange to have had that, that shore of a game plan coming in and then have it work so catastrophically, uh, so awfully and then have four- to change course, you know, 14 points into the match. But that's, but to your point again, about who can challenge Iga, there just isn't but beyond Sabalank. And I think Pagula was an interesting pick because I just feel like we, we saw her limitations as well at this tournament, just sort of the, the all around consistency and, and, and how marvelous, uh, how marvelously Pagula has managed to shape that and make that her calling card does not have seemingly the kill shot the way that, you know, a Sabalenka does. And so I think that's, it's gonna, it's, it's a big advantage to Fiontech because there isn't someone with that sort of earth shattering power, earth shattering game. that's really going to take it to her well. that often. Well, with that in mind, why do you think we talk about Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club so frequently here on this show? Do you think it's really because I like the bit that much? Okay, it is. I do like the bit, but it's also because that's the game style. You have to be able to play on your own terms against someone who's that physically imposing. And, you know, you mentioned Sabalenka. I think it's insulting to not put some respect on Elena Rabakina's name. I think she belongs in that conversation. We're at her best. Now it's got to be her best, but when that first serve is landing, she can be in the ball game. I don't think I have to make the Samsonova case to you. I'm not actually ready to make it quite yet, but it's one to just keep an eye on with the sort of transcendent power she can play with the combination of physical talent and the reliable first serve off both wings. It's just a name you keep in mind. The good weeks for Ostapenko, I mean, we saw it in the Middle East. She was actually one of the players who had that relentless power good enough to do it. I'll listen to a Jung Chin Wen argument if you want to make it. But it's like, I mean, we're talking about the elite of the elite power tennis players, because with all due respect to Pagula and Conteve and Jabur and all of these exceptional physical talents, but who just don't have that definitive finishing stroke, they're losing to the 21-year-old version of Iga Svantec. Her game is that complete. And even on a day where she, you know, the final nine, 19 winners against 30 unforced errors doesn't look great. It was the margin she gave herself in set number one. It's that she did seem to always be playing from ahead. And so the final note on Iga before we move on here, DK, just to run you through some of the stats because we do have some good ones. 10th play. Don't make that face at me. I'm glad we're live because I want you to know he makes that face every time I'm ready to get into the stats, but it's leading to a place you like to go. 10th player to win the U.S. Open and Roland Garros in the same year. Those players, Margaret Court, Billie Jean King, Chrissy Everett, Navratilova, Graf, Celis, Sanchez, Vicario. Interesting inclusion on that list. Serena and Ennin. She's the first player to win two slams in one season since Angelique Kerber. I actually really like that stack because I know Osaka did the U.S.-Australian double twice, but it's just indicative of how open this era has been. And if, you know, I always say if you're a Hall of Famer, it means you can't tell the story of an era of tennis without saying your name. And it's like Osaka, Sviantec, Barty. Those are the three Hall of Famers from this era right now. Those are really the three names you need to tell the story of what's happened. I think Sviantec's put herself in that conversation. She's one of seven players to win her first three slam finals. She's the ninth player to win three Grand Slam titles before turning 22 years old. The list of that player, Sharapova, Enin, Serena, Venus, Hingis, Celis, Groff, Everett. We talk about it on this show before. We've talked about it again. 
the gold standard for what's possible to accomplish age 21 and under. It's Celis, who won like 90% of her matches. I think it's nine total. It's either seven or nine slams. I forget what the number is. I think it's nine um, before turning 22. She won about, you know, again, just world number one, et cetera, et cetera. Hingis, I believe, had the five slams, but also world number one. She was the youngest player ever to ascend to the world number one ranking. I believe she did it at 16 years old. You know, she's 1B in that she's still also the gold standard. It's just what Celis did will never be accomplished again. Then you have the next tier, which is the Serena Sharapova tier. Multiple slam finals, couple slam titles as well. World number one ranking, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Justine Ennin has a cup of coffee in that conversation. You get players like Capriati, Davenport, Venus, who all show up here as well. Here's the big picture question with all those stats. For It's quite a big picture. Yeah, well, look at our screen. You got five pictures on the screen. Shows you how big it is. Um, Is it fair to now put Iga Svantec in that conversation, Iga Svantec, who is a ridiculous 102 and 25, David, 102 and 25 since August 2020. In two and a half years, she's winning over 80% of her matches, and she turned 21 years old on May 31st this year. Is she the greatest of all time? No, no one's saying that. Is she eliminated from the greatest of all time conversation, David? When you're on the list with these eight, nine other players, the answer's just no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, to rewind back, uh, I feel like talking about the errors and who we will remember from this time, I feel like at this point, Shviantek is already well and truly eclipsed Barty. I mean, I don't think in 10 years, I mean, the fact that Barty is Australian will certainly lead cult, lend itself culturally to keeping her in that conversation. But I think in terms of pop culture, I think we're going to remember Naomi Osaka just because of her wins and also what she's contributed to the game. And I think what Shvantec is doing and what is she what she is about to do is already more far more impressive than anything that Barty was able to accomplish. You know, most most uh, notably the thirty seven match win streak. You know, the the two slams in one year on two different surfaces. You know, I think this is really just the start of something quite spectacular from Shvantec. I mean, I think we are looking to see someone who is about to accomplish quite a lot in terms of resume. I think, yes, she's already secured herself a Hall of Fame uh, position because that's the way that the Hall of Fame works. It's weird to think of it like that, but yes, she's already done enough to make it into the Hall of Fame. No, no worries. I think, in fact, I think the Hall of Fame even announced that she's like automatically on the ballot. Like when she, <laughs> like when she retires within five years, like she's automatically uh, nominated. So congratulations. But I think um, just the athleticism, the way she plays the game, her competitiveness, the desire to to be on the court, and the fact that she is um, just that much more together, I think, than those of her peers, I think just puts her in phenomenal stead to really clean up. You know, there's not a lot I can think of in terms of who's really going to, you know, step in Shviantek's way. I mean, even talking about that trio of heavy hitters, all three of them, I believe, are outside of the top, at least the top 15, if not the top 20. I mean, Ostapenko lost a very um, limp, First round to Jung Chin Wen. Um, Rabakina lost to Clara Burrell, the US Open, after making quite a scene about how she felt she wasn't being respected as a Wimbledon champion. I don't know if that um, that really helped her argument. And then Samsonova, obviously, we still need to see more from her. But obviously, I think looking at her from a technical perspective, she's certainly probably the one that I am the most 
um, optimistic for that she we could see her you know competing for a spot in the top eight this time next year. I think that that's really um, beyond her ceiling. You know, beyond it is beyond her ceiling. Not like it is beyond her ceiling. If that makes sense. <laughs> and I, I, I can I can make gestures because y'all can see me. But um, yeah, I think she's probably the one I most ost- I'm the most Ostapenko ish. I'm the most optimistic about <laughs> of that trio. But um, yeah. I, you know, it's, it's Shvantec, Shvantec reminds me, I'm going to say it, it reminds me a little bit of Graf in the sense of like, she's just going to, in terms of the personality and in the sense of like, just a superior athlete is not really going to necessarily wow you, you know, with, with the personality and the sort of like, um, she, I don't think she'll ever become like a pop culture phenomenon necessarily in the way that a Serena or Naomi has managed to become. But I think um, Iga is going to be one of those players that you just won't be able to ignore because of her resume. And I think she's already on the on the, the verge of uh, something quite special. Yeah, her, Goff, Radakanu, Fernandez, you know, Jung Chin Wen, Clara Tossin, they're all not going to be 30 by January 1st, 2030. And so it's like, yeah, there's a lot of good players still rising up. Obviously, you've got the... Sabalenka's, Benchich's, Bedosa's, Sakri's of the world who you feel like you're still going to get at least five more good seasons out of, if not maybe a little bit more, given the way things have changed. I mean, it's just, again, how complete her game is. It's the fact that she didn't play her best from start to finish in any of the 12 matches. She started spray uh, seven matches, excuse me. She started spraying at the end of that Jabir match. And Jabir had some success attacking that forehand and working her way back in the second set. And it's yet you either need to be relentlessly powerful or relentlessly consistent. And just like there is no one out there who maximizes one of those two things right now. And so, you know, again, we've talked about a big picture and I want to look at the top 10 right now, particularly in the points race, because that's one of the storylines we monitor down the home stretch. You've got Shviantek, who's qualified for the tour finals in Fort Worth, by the way. Shout out Fort Worth. Um, do we know where that is? Is that at TCU? Is it going to be there? Or it's got to be somewhere else, right? Well, I'm going to be there. So wherever it is, that's where I will be. But I have not double checked the uh, the venue. That's for sure. Okay, I'm going to try and go as well, DK. Maybe we can hang out for the week, do some live shows. Um, right now, Pagula is about 500 points away. She's in third. Goff is in fourth. Garcia, fifth. Somehow, Sabalenka is in sixth. You've got Kasatkina, seven. Halep, eight. Sakari, nine. Kudermatova, ten. I mean, when you look at this landscape, and we've talked about it before, tier one versus tier two. And let's look at Own Jabur real quick, because I think we know t- right now there's only one definitive tier one player who you know is in the conversation to win every single major. And after this season, Iga Svantec's earned her right to be there. As you start to look at tier two, this is where we have the argument of are there 22 players? Or if we're being honest, are there no players who are currently tier two? Who... Maybe not a sure thing, you know, not guaranteed. All right, they're going to compete for the title, but you know, they're making the round of 16. Like Jess Pagula coming into this, I said it on our preview podcast. I knew more confidently than any player in the draw, Jess Pagula was going to make the round of 16. And like to me, that's what epitomizes really tier two is it's like they're going to get to the quarterfinals, they're going to get to the semis, you know, they'll be in that top 10 range. In the yeah, rankings, oh, yeah. okay, go is on. Is it if it's tier? Two, if you, doesn't the fact that they're likely not to make it past the round of sixteen or quarterfinal sort of undercut the tier two itiveness of them? Like if they're if they have no, such a no, low no. ceiling, 
no, no, that's the floor. Tier two is the floor. Uh, sorry, round of 16 is the floor for tier two. It's like, I know you're getting to the second week. Now, how far you go in that second week depends on the draw, who's the seed in your section, et cetera. So like for own Jabur, for instance, who you look now overall this season, and we've played this game before, but she's 44 and 14 overall this year. Her only really bad loss is Lynette, three sets, first round French, Seville, three sets, first round Indian Wells. Those are the only two where you're like, oh man, she wants those back. Everything else is pretty solid. You know, you look for Jabur this season, she's eight and seven against the top 20, one in five against the top 10, you know, her, she ranks, I think tied for third in terms of top 20 victories overall on the season. She's made what four finals, five finals, two slam finals this year. Is she the only tier two player? Let's start there. Is she tier two? Has she, uh, you know, she's made second week in five out of the last 10 slams. She's now made finals in the last two. Like she might be the only tier two player right now. Well, I mean, if if it is a statistical requirement, you know, if she, if it's just making the second week of slams, then I would say it would be her and Pagula. But I don't know. For me to think of like a tier two, I'm I'm more partial to the fact that it's really uh, a an empty tier two <laughs> at this okay. point because I just think that I mean, look, I mean, to make those Wimbledon and you, yes, she's you know beating the players in front of her, and that's very impressive to do. I think. If I were to look at her, what, 12 wins at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, I would say probably her most impressive win was against Shelby at the U.S. Open this year. I think that was probably the one where I thought, wow, that's actually, you know, Shelby Rogers at a Grand Slam at the U.S. Open, you know, tends to pull off these kinds of upsets, went down a set, and Jabir comes back and pulls it off. And I guess I would give half credit to Kudermetova because um, mm-hmm. that was a player that she was 0-3 against in head to head. Although that was what I, my counter was going to be is that was the most impressive to me. But I see your point. No, and, and I give half credit because it's still Kudermetova in a Grand Slam quarterfinal. I mean, like that's just <laughs> let's be honest here. I mean, like that's just talk about where talk about someone having a ceiling. I mean, that's yeah. that's been Kudermetova's ceiling for sure. I mean, when when Kudermetova played Kasakina in the French Open quarters, I was like, oh, good for you. One of you is definitely going to make a semifinal now. That's <laughs> the only way that was going to happen. Um, we're live. Um, Yes. I mean, I just think that things have really fallen into place for Jabor at the last two slams. And I mean, it kind of reminds me also a little bit of um, this for you, for you old heads who, who who like to remember a time when tennis was better. Wait, can we I younger. guess the name here? Can I guess the name here? I'm going to go with Hunchakova. No, no. Come uh, on. 2010, Vera Zvonareva. Wimbledon uh, you know, what? I was going to say that, but I was like, that's too obvious. Come on. The, yeah. the, the de facto number two behind Caroline Wozniacki when she goes down to Australia and Chris Fowler makes her eat Vegemite to prove that she's not crazy. They ask her, Vera, you get so crazy on the court. Why are you so crazy? And she goes, I'm not crazy. And they say, are you sure? Prove it. Have some Vegemite. Because <laughs> they were in Australia and she just kind of had to like, I can have a, good, have a good time and laugh about it and eating that like, ooh, that Vegemite. But yeah, so that's... um. It's kind of where I'm at with Jabor. I mean, obviously, tremendous physical effort this year to like recover from all the physical struggles that took her through the end of last season into the beginning of this, you know, effectively, you know, derailed her chances of qualifying for Guadalajara last year is now a guaranteed shot for Fort Worth this year. Fantastic effort on her part. But just watching her in these Grand Slam finals, you know, it's there is an intangible. It's so funny for a player that is all intangibles. The one intangible that seems to be missing here is that sort of mental edge in these big matches. And she was so upset, you know, in the, in the locker room or in the, the player area as the, as the camera so obtrusively uh, broadcast after the final. I mean, it just makes you think how many of these like really tough losses can you take before it starts to really, you know, chip away at you psychologically. And then you start to take, you know, one bad loss, one bad loss, one bad loss. And then all of a sudden, 
you're ranked 25 instead of two. And you're thinking, Oh, what the heck happened? I was, you know, competing for grand slam titles a year ago. So, I mean, there's, there's something missing with her. There's something missing with, with Pagula, you know, obviously, you know, very talented, maybe, you know, because she is so consistent and doesn't have the sort of glaring technical flaws of even a Jabor or even a Bedosa or a Consovite, you feel like that there's something that'll maybe continue to get her into these positions, but she seems to have a definite ceiling with the quarterfinals. I mean, it really just feels like it is Iga versus the field at this point, which is right where we started at the beginning of this, of the Grand Slam season, which was Ash versus the field. And now we have Iga versus the field. So the, so plus sachons, uh, plus c'est la même chose, as they say in French. Uh, well said, or a handing of, of the baton, as we say here in English. Yeah, I mean, look, Shabur, 104 and 39 since August 2020, 73% win percentage. That's got to be top five. And I think probably behind only Iga and maybe Ash, if you want to include her. I'm sure Halep's up there, but we don't have to get into a Halep debate today, I promise. Can I throw two more tier two names at you before we move on to the women's? Sure. Zabalanka, because she does have that threat of like, well... You know, first of all, she's made semifinals in three of her last five majors. Second of all, it's like, well, if it were, you know, her last eight losses at the majors have been in three sets. That's another fun fact I like to throw at people. Um, look, we are Sabalenka Kool-Aid drinker. She's the answer in the locked safe in Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club main office where it's like, how do we get into this safe? And the answer is Sabalenka wins a slam. She is like, I think she is probably wild card number A, where you're just like, who can win this slam if it's not Iga? You're like, well, if Arena puts it together, we saw that first set of the semifinals. Well, I mean, for the third year in a row, here we are. I I feel like, you know, (laughs) she is is that kind of tier two where it's like, that's the one where it's like, well, maybe. Yeah. If we're talking about potential, and and what I have to give Sabalink a lot of credit for is that for someone who presents as quite chaotic (laughs) just sort of as a person and as a character on court she has consistently really done the work of trying to improve herself as a player whether that's parting with Dmitry Tursunov whether that's you know trying to make herself a player that competes at Grand Slam tournaments whether that's hiring Gavin McMillan to fix the serve I mean this is someone who does really try to put the effort into fashion herself this isn't a player who is just like well, these, this is me. This is my game. I'm going to struggle for a decade and, you know, just bang my head against the wall. It does feel like that she is really trying. And you have to think that that kind of energy gets rewarded at some point. It just feels like that she's had a lot of awful luck in the last couple of years, just putting everything together all at once. But yes, because someone even mentioned it to me during the second week of the U.S. Open that, you know, Sabalenka was one of the very few players who was intimidated by a peak Ash Barty, was able to go to the court with her and really just play her best tennis. And I think that'll be the same, a lot of the same dynamic against Svantec once she's feeling confident enough again to really go for her shots and no one to go for her shots because she was just really pressing far too much in the final four games that match. It was one of the few big losses where you could say, oh, the serve didn't really didn't let her down necessarily. Uh-huh. It was just that, it was just the ground game and just pressing too much. And so if she can, that serve can hold up <laughs> until Australia, we will see uh, what will happen. But she's obviously and remains the player that I'm most excited about until further notice. The expression is it's the fifth rail, right? Is what you're not supposed to talk about. Or what? what's that phrasing? It's the fifth rail or like the fourth rail or what, the, you know, you uh, the third, the third, third rail. rail. So that's my question is what's the second and first rails? Like, do we know for certain? Anyways, the third rail of this podcast. The main, is, those are the two main rails. The third rail is the one that electrifies the. So See, the two this, rails are the one that the train goes on. Welcome to New York, everybody. No, this so is what I'm saying. And so as a non, as a Michigander, a lot of cars, obviously Motor City, baby. Talk me through. So that's what that is. It's there's the two main rails and it's the third rail. That Yeah, the third rail is on the side. It electrifies the the railage. Uh, 
please. Really? If, there's like a, if, there, if there's like a train, if there's like a train, an automotive expert that's going <laughs> to pop into the chat, by all means. But I'm quite sure that's how it goes. No, see, you get smarter every day here. That's why we want to have you here, DK. But the third rail of Crack Rackets podcast is to say these words out loud, but I'm going to say it. Sabalenka served well throughout this U.S. Open. Look good, right? <laughs> it didn't just look good. You're like, oh, yeah. This is why Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club has a home we're building, getting it ready for you should you be ready to move in. We had a prior home, but Rabakina swooped it, you know, for, you know, took $100,000 off the top line as well. Got a good deal on that. So, um, no, I, I think as we watch this race down the home stretch, you talk about the Kudermatovas, the Kasatkinas, they're in position to put themselves in the year in finals. Will we see Simona Halep again this season? Maybe not. Uh, so that would be, you know, another spot as David points to his nose to talk about the surgery that she has gotten. Just surgery. We're live. Don't keep that in mind. She uh, did mention there was a plastic surgery element to it. She mentioned it in the statement. Just so right. happened to be an element gonna, of, of the procedure. Well, I'm going to bring up a story. And I know he'll never listen to this podcast. I know everyone involved in this story, excluding my mother, will never listen to this podcast. So my freshman year of high school, regionals, we play our rival regional finals we play i should say my brother played i was on the bench my freshman year do you know uh, we don't have to get into it. i weighed more my freshman year of high school than i do now that's a story for a different time um anyways point being um fresh so regional finals it rains we move indoors and we have to go to this place called the sports club in west bloomfield and the net curtains at the sports club are particularly thick and so even if you try to give yourself some space on the baseline, you run into the net curtain. If you try to re return too far behind the baseline, it teaches us to be aggressive. That's why I am how I am. Um, the point is my older brother has two best friends, twins who were born three hours before him. They're December 9th. He's December 10th. And they were playing, you know, he was playing one of the twins in this regional final. Now everyone knows the scene. We're really set. Um, Eric hits a uh, lefty kick serve out wide and Matthew is his name goes to hit a forehand return, but he's too far behind the, the baseline. So his racket hits the net curtain and he swings and he hits himself in the face and it got a little bloody. Wasn't horrible, but he clearly screwed up his nose. Now credit to Matthew. He played out the rest of the match. Ooh. Shout out to Dr. Stein, his lovely mother, who was passing out in the seats, whatever. It was hilarious. I mean, it wasn't funny. In retrospect, it was funny. But Matthew Gold, big nose. He had a big nose, no doubt about it. So he had to get surgery to fix the nose. What do they do? They say, you know what? While you're in there, do you mind just snipping a little off the top since you're there anyways? And he got a nose job out of it. So the point is, don't hate the player, hate the game. Like I, whatever Simona Halep wants to do with her nose, all credit to her. Not at all. And if you, but if you remember, this is this is a procedure that was years in the making. I mean, this is Simona yeah, Halep back in 2016 true. threatened to leave the tour for a nose surgery, and then said, and then came back mysteriously week, weeks later, saying, "I decided not to do it." And then here we here we are. Um, it seems scheduled in such a way that makes me think that we will not see her in Fort Worth. But you know, stranger <laughs> things have happened. Let me ask you this. As an editorial producer, if we weren't live, would you tell me to cut that story about Matthew breaking his nose? If it was up to me, if I had yeah. editorial control, if yeah. I was if I was resting the uh, the scissors away from Westhoff, no, I don't know. I feel like it gave color to the uh, to the debate. All right, Westhoff lets us know in the chat that he would cut it. Uh, <laughs> but no, yeah, I agree. I think that context was crucial. No, with that said, again, Iga Swiatek, three major titles, definitive world number one. She's the player to beat. But 
Man, uh, we talked about the parody coming in. I guess that would be the last thing. Jabur, Garcia, Sviantec, Sabalenka. Like, it kind of made sense. For the first time in a while, I look at this U.S. Open, and I think big picture, like, yeah, everything that happened, I get. I'm curious if you feel that way. I mean, it didn't, it didn't. I mean, like, if we're looking at, like, who performed the best over the two weeks, I was, ex- I would have expected a Garcia-Sabalenka final, um, which we did not get <laughs> for two very different reasons. I mean, one was a technical, uh, tactical uh, malfunction from Sabalenka just going for too much. And mm, what is the technical term for turning back into a pumpkin, which is what happened to, <laughs> to Garcia in that semifinal? It was just, I really thought we were past it with her. I mean, I asked her when she beat Coco, who is, you know, in my opinion, the mentally toughest player in tennis. We didn't we didn't give enough credit to Coco in that. By the way, that was going to be the, the other tier two player yeah. I meant to I mention. Mean, I had two honestly, more names for you. Yeah, she's I think the other she, one. Yeah, I think really she's probably the most the the tier two-iest, you know, the one that I feel like can consistently make the second week and perhaps go farther. Obviously limited with the forehand, as we've discussed, but still just so mentally tough in a way that made me think that she was going to have the edge on Garcia. And the fact that Garcia played so well and was so t- so strong. In that quarterfinal, only to show up not at all in that semifinal against Anshabor, I was, I felt a great deal of secondhand embarrassment during that match. I have to be honest. It was just not the day. And and I mean, you would hope that this doesn't erase all of the good feelings that she um, had put together in the last month and a half. For me, it would have taken me a while to recover because I would feel like I did all this hard work, you know, to play an opponent that I'm playing well enough to beat. It's not like Shabur has played like had played earth shattering tennis to make that semifinal and then just didn't give anything. The serve fell apart. The forehand didn't work. You know, it was just. She was down 3-0 in about 30 seconds. Catastrophe. I mean, I was, yeah, the, the, the first set was, I think the first set was under a half hour. I, I left and I just let out a large sigh because it was just, I can't believe that she's doing this in a Grand Slam semifinal. We've been waiting so long for this, you know, once in a generation talent to finally make it this far to slam. And then. <clears throat> you know, yeah. is, is the, is the technical term for what happened. So, I mean, it was just on paper. Yes. It was, you know, a very cool semifinal lineup, especially, I mean, what always, what also happens with these women's draws, we set the bar so low in terms of like, it's going to be chaotic. Yula Niemeyer, Jung Chin Wen in a grand slam final. I mean, it, it could, that could have happened. <laughs> so maybe we needed to really lay the groundwork for that in case it did. But, you know, when we got what we got, it was certainly good on paper. I don't know if it really matches the heights of, you know, the days of yore. I mean, there's certainly uh, statisticians on Twitter who compare, you know, the, the amount of matches between top 10 players at yeah. slams and how they have really fallen off a cliff. You know, so when people say that you don't you miss... mean Oleg, you can just say Oleg. I do mean Oleg, but I I, I wanted to give him a, a, a professional, you know, <laughs> call him a statistician. I mean, so when people then will say that, oh, you're not, you, you're just saying that you're young. You just wish you were younger. That's why you're mad. Well, that's why you're mad that women's tennis isn't what it was 20 years ago. It's, no, I mean, there are, you don't have to gaslight me. There are some statistical reasons why things are not quite what they used to be, but well played. Um, <laughs> yeah. All of which to say, you know, that semifinal lineup, it was, it was certainly looked good. We got a match between two top 10 players. We got Iga Shiontek, you know, you know, reaffirming her dominance over this tour. Evidently, there's only room enough on tour for one dominant player at this stage of the women's <laughs> game. Hope that changes. You know, hopefully Sabalenka can kind of continue to play as well as she did. Hopefully Samsonova is able to, you know, re- rejigger her, her streaking form through the fall. I mean, obviously, with the way that the points are set up, I think probably anyone still has a shot of making it to Fort Worth based on how these next six weeks play out. So I think there's nothing off the table and um, certainly makes the fall swing quite exciting. Yeah. 
And for the record, we traded the Coco segment for the Matthew segment, just so you know. And I appreciate you naming her because she was the other player, 18 years old. She's great. Yeah, she's got it. It's just like all the the totality of things she could do to watch the physicality against Madison Keys. That was one of the more undercard moments of the match. You're not going to remember it when you think big picture because so many different things happened. But that was excellent tennis from Coco Golf. Yeah. I never felt more of a never in doubt feeling than golf drawing keys because like just <laughs> like a mental giant against yeah. the opposite. You know, I've, I've sat in too many Madison keys press conferences where she's just crying and doesn't know what went wrong. It's like, well, I mean, yeah, know thyself. Yeah. It's been yeah. a decade. Completely fair. But with that said, knowing thyself, you probably, or myself, you probably knew it was going to go over the hour that I said we were going to go. But with that said, it is time for us to finally transition now. Over to day 14 of this 2022 oh <laughs> U.S. Open men's singles action. No, here's the thing. Gillen and I, your friend, Gil Gross, friend of us here at Gilbert. Crack Rackets, we've got a fun Gilbert announcement coming later this week. Be on the lookout for it. That's what we call a tease here at CR. Um, Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. We talked about a lot of this, and I think the Alcaraz narrative has been the same Alcaraz narrative we've talked about all year long. So in this one, it's particular. I mean, it's the same thing with Iga for the record. I guess the difference here for, well, honestly, look, I could do another hour on Alcaraz. I'm happy to. Point is, Carlos Alcaraz is a Grand Slam champion, and you look for Carlos Alcaraz now, similarly as I did for Iga, just to run you through some preliminary stats, 51 and 9 overall this season at 19 years old, David, he's winning 85% of his matches. We're talking prime seasons for Sampras, for Agassi, for the, you know, the Mac and Rose of the world. That's the tier this lives in. Now, Rafa, Djokovic, Nadal, they all get to that 88, 89, dare I say, even 90% club where they're winning 70 plus matches in a single season. Alcaraz isn't quite there, but he's the tier beneath it. You know, he's 125 and 33. Since August 2020, let's keep in mind he's been a teenager during that entire stretch of time. He's now a U.S. Open title winner, first to win the title, saving a match point since Stan in 2016, second youngest behind only Sampras now in history. He's also the youngest ever world number one, and that comes on the back of seven finals here, a tour leading number in the 2022 season. He's 17 and six versus top 20 opponents. Nine and four versus the top 10. The number of people I had texting me throughout the course of the two weeks, David, asking who is this kid, not just as a tennis player, but as an athlete, the things he's capable of making possible, the behind back magic, the on the run, full sprint diving, even when he misses it on, you know, forehand pass where he's sliding onto his belly that he hit against Kasparut in set number three in this match. The fact that he played three five set matches in over 13 hours of tennis heading into this final in his three prior matches. I mean, what's left to say? Like, he is a deserving world number one, is he not? Yeah, I got a, first of all, I got a lot of text messages about Alvarez and Rudd. <laughs> Alcatraz. And they were both, they were all from my mom. So we can, we can start <laughs> there. But I mean, talking about the ATP, you know, 
season arc versus the WTA season arc. I mean, the WTA somehow managed to end up with the exact same arc from Australia to the US Open, just a dominant number one, really making a mockery of the rest of the field, just two different players. But we, when you look at the ATP, I mean, they've got to be salivating with the way that they've been able to, you know, pull off the scam of the century. I mean, to start the season with Rafa Nadal breaking the, the big three tie, and then to end the season with, you know, his heir apparent, essentially, or even just the big threes, heir apparent, winning his first slam, doing big three stuff, you know, playing all these back-to-back-to-back throughout five setters, playing these, you know, phenomenal, insane gets, doing all this, you know, this magic tennis. I mean, at, at 19 years old, finally winning, finally winning his first slam. It feels overdue <laughs> at this point. It feels six, six, six months too late, it feels in many ways. But I mean, I did say to, to remain in the, in the GOAT debate, he had to win a slam this year and he, he did do it. But I think uh, certainly the ATP has got to be overjoyed by this, by this new champion that they have this sort of next, the, the torch has been passed or, and, and whether he will continue to share the torch with, you know, Djokovic and Nadal. I mean, to have someone who's able to replicate their high level of excellence and have there be no gap in between. You know, it's, he sort of eliminates the fear of the sort of chaotic ATP dark ages that I think has been presaged for many years. That once the big three retire, it's going to be crazy. But not if Alcaraz continues to play like this. It'll just be a pretty seamless transition from the big three dominating to Alcaraz dominating. Arc, you know, And if, if the other men are not careful, he'll be dominating alone and often. I brought this up on Twitter, and I know I said this earlier. He's going to be 26 on January 1st, 2030. Like, do you know how scary that is for the rest of the tour? That the fact that his best decade of tennis might be the 2030s and not the 2020s? Like, just a remarkable thought that, again, is conceivable at this point. And before I dive into my statistical look at this men's final, do you think Carlos Alcaraz played well in the U.S. Open men? No, 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 not well. Do you think he played his best tennis in the U.S. Open men's final? No. I mean, I think he played brilliantly often, but I don't think wall-to-wall he played amazingly. And I think that, if that, if if anything, is the takeaway for the rest of the field is the fact that Alcaraz did not play perfectly in that final. That, you know, for as many, you know, miraculous shots that as Alcaraz pulled off in that match, Rude was able to get quite a few back. And that's something that really the field is going to have to take heart in because I think the way that Alcaraz can play, the way that he can dominate, the way that he can be durable and turn around and be this sort of physical machine, it'll be very easy for the rest of the field to turn around and just say, oh, too good. He's too good. He's a once-in-a-lifetime talent. I can't compete with him. And then sort of you lose that edge in these matches. And I think it happened a little bit with Rude just being so disappointed at having lost that third set. But he was very much in that match until about 20 minutes till the finish line. I mean, so I think they have to – the other men in this field have to remember that this is not – it for them that Alcaraz can have dips in form, that he can get mental fatigue. I mean, there were some you know instances in that match where it just felt like he was really running on fumes, and yet was really you know energized by the by the tiebreaker. Just played just well enough to get to that tiebreak, and then was able to ride the wave to the end. So I, I don't think no, I don't think he played flawless tennis, but he certainly played some you know very eye catching tennis at many points in the final, and certainly played well enough overall to win the title. You absolutely nailed it, and that's what makes these numbers so impressive. 14 aces Here they come. against <laughs> <laughs> sorry west i fuck you um all right here we go 14 aces against three double faults 64 percent first serve percentage he went 74 percent of his first uh serve points he fought off 10 of the seven break points that he faced here's the big numbers 55 oh, really? winners against 41 unforced errors did it feel 
like Carlos Alcaraz hit more winners than unforced errors in that match. I would agree with your sentiment, DK. I don't think the answer to that question is yes. I thought Kasparu did a really good job of extending every rally in this match. And in particular, set number two, you know, I thought the counter he should have made is to be more aggressive in his return positioning and try and force Alcaraz to play a little bit more on the run. He didn't do that. He parked the bus. He said, we're making this match a track meet. And to your point, he had a ton of success doing it. I think if you ask ev- you know, uh, everyone who was tuned into set number three, who was the better player in this set? The unequivocal answer was Casper Ruud, who, you know, you look in set number three, 14 winners to 13 unforced errors. Alcaraz just a casual 18-10 set. But, you know, both guys were broken once throughout the course of the set. And yet it felt like that set was played on Casper Ruud's terms. That, again, the points were getting a little bit longer that, you know, when Carlos Alcaraz felt a need to pull the trigger a little bit earlier in the rally because if he didn't, he just wasn't beating Ruth in the points that went over five, 10 shots. And yet, like to your point, Casper won the third set breaker, uh, excuse me, Carlos won the third set breaker and he was off. And it's just like, you know, the first two service games of the match were close, but Carlos breaks in the third and he's off. And it's just like, you can't give this guy an inch because if you give him an inch, he'll take the mile. And it's just like, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I don't think Carlos played well in this match. Like I thought his forehand was spraying on him. I thought you could clearly see even when he was winning, he was trying to end points earlier in the rally because you could just tell he didn't want to be the Carlos Alcaraz track meet superstar. He always was until the fourth set when it was like, wait a second, I'm a set away from this. All right. I got one more set in my body. And like, again, I want, we'll get to the root side of the, of the equation in a second, but that is to me my most notable takeaway from this final as well. And you put it perfectly. It's that, hey, rest of the field, Carlito didn't even play his best and he's still now a Grand Slam champion. Like, What is it going to look like at the 2025 US Open? That would be my field, uh, like the concern right now if you're the rest of the field because like Sinner played awesome. I mean, Francis played awesome awesome like Casper did not play poorly and it didn't matter and if I'm the field I'm like god damn it like I gotta figure this out and I this is now priority not 1a because you are always the priority as a player yourself you know you have to be the best version of yourself but priority 2a is all right someone on my coaching team needs to be scouting Alcaraz at all moments and finding the game plan because again he didn't even play his best and he won the slam yeah. Um, I think yeah. the problem, I think with, yeah, I, Carlos is only going to improve, but at the same time, you know, this is a guy that was, you know, certainly felt the pressure at multiple points at this, uh, during this 2022 season, felt it certainly at the slams, was talking about feeling it before the U.S. Open and, you know, was able to sort of shake that off heading into this major, um, you know, just, I think, you know, the third set tiebreaker was just really, I don't even know if he made a mental switch so much as just the fact that Root played so terribly in the tiebreaker that it really just energized him to know that he had the match on his racket. I think up until those set points, it really did feel like all the momentum was with Root in that third set, just really. And I think that's, 
in many ways, in some ways, I don't want to say many ways, but in some ways that almost felt to me like the bigger takeaway, which is the fact that Rude really did come to this final, did not embarrass himself the way that he did against Rafa in the French Open final, and just really took it to Car- uh, Carlos in a way that makes you think that this is potentially going to be you know, a very engaging couple of years of players going back and forth competing for these slams and not in a way that's going to necessarily be just him running away with it. Because I think there is that danger just because he is so naturally talented. He's so fit. He's going to have the mental toughness now of having won a major title. So that's, that's, that's the, that's the disappointment, I guess, for the field is like, ah, oh, we let him get one. And now how quick, how, how soon is it going to be until he's at five, six, seven, eight? Um, because yeah. it just, it does feel like the, um, the mental block in many ways is probably going to come off for him in 2023. It'll be interesting to see how he competes the rest of the season, because I think that this is any opportunities that the field is going to have to get licks in on him. He's, you know, he is the prime target right now. This is, you know, they have to understand that this is, you know, very much a legend in the making everything about him, everything about his game, everything about his pedigree makes you think that this is a guy that's going to be competing for slams for the next, like you said, 20 years. So, you know, the sooner you can get in and figure out what it is about his game, the better it is going to be because I think otherwise we're just going to be, you're just going to be a footnote on like a human highlight reel. And that's not, that's not fun for any, for to, to, as a player or, or to watch, to be honest. I need to watch him play Medvedev on a hard court. That's the one matchup with Medvedev's length, how well he hits the backhand, the fact that he can win free points with his serve. I need to see that matchup. I'm the only human in the world who would rewatch Zverev Alcaraz from this year's French open, because I just think, Zero of again, length, size, serve. You need to play a guy like Alcaraz. Sinner's the other one, like who had a match point, played well enough ostensibly to beat to beat Carlos Alcaraz and be the guy in that final. And everything we're saying about Alcaraz, we can now be saying about against Yannick Sinner had he hit a slightly better first serve or a slightly better first forehand on that match point. Um, you know, that said. On the flip side, we talked about it on the women's side, and we can move on to Casper Rude. And there's a Twitter account at Rude Awakening on Twitter, and it's just gifts of Casper Rude winking at people. And it's actually run by David. Listeners don't know that, but it's it's his account. Yeah, just if people know that that's not real. That's not a real Twitter account. But the point is the tier two conversation on the men's side. We can, you know, I think tier one's the more fun debate who actually belongs with Carlos Alcaraz in that tier moving forward. But if if you're a pessimist and you're going to be disrespectful to tier one, which is your prerogative, disrespectful is the wrong word, but we'll say you're lower on tier one. I mean, there's at least 10 tier two guys on the men's side, right? Like at worst, Zverev, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Berrettini, Kasper Ruud, you feel like all of them are tier two guys. And you feel like the next five to seven years alongside of Sinner, alongside of Alcaraz, if you want to throw Felix in that conversation of no lower than tier two, I'll listen to you as well. There's a, you, you mentioned it, like if you're the 2022 ATP tour organization, you're like, God, I meant to say if you're the ATP organization looking at 2022, but words aren't exactly my friend always. You're looking back at this year and you're like, holy script break well for us, because now we've just got, in my opinion, they've got a bunch of guys led by the most marketable of them all. And the I don't have a single blemish on my resume right now from an off court perspective, Carlos Alcaraz, like with Alcaraz and Sinner leading the bunch, it feels like there is a plethora of talent. 
Yeah. I mean, you look, you compare where the ATP was in terms of a through line in the spring, you're looking at someone who was not able to play Wimbledon at number one and someone who is, yeah. you know, uh, under whatever he's under in terms of investigation in, in Zverev. And now Zverev is out seemingly indefinitely pulled out of uh, the Davis Cup and seems like he won't be back until next year at the earliest. Um, seemed to have another, you know, uh, really difficult injury that he'll have to recover from. Mm-hmm. Sad. Um, but, you know, I think you look at, you know, it's like I said, it's, it couldn't be a, a better through line. I mean, you just have like big three senior, big three junior, and then, you know, some compelling, you know, compelling guys, you know, underneath him competing, you know, alongside him. And I think that's the ATP is in the business of, er- of legends of golden eras. And so to have someone of that kind of talent now leading their field at 19 years old, I mean, they couldn't be asking for a better, a better setup, you know, and, and hopefully, from a consumer perspective, they will be able to have, they will be able to have rivals for Alcaraz who really continue to take it to him and to figure out, you know, how to beat him and how to compete with him. If not, if not beat him all the time, how to compete with him to make these some compelling rivalries. Cause that was the other missing piece of the big three era is that there were three guys competing against each other. It was never just one and the field. And that's obviously that's what the the WTA has been dealing with for a couple of years now, but like the difference there, I mean, maybe you can make the, a similar comparison to Shiantek, but the way that Alcaraz is able to hit the ball and compete is really quite otherworldly. So it's even hard to make that comparison across any discipline right now. Yeah, that's fair to say. I mean, you look back at history because of course I did. And then of course I want to again, get back to this field, but you look for Djokovic, you know, 19 and a half years old. And it's tough because 2007, when Djokovic turned 20, was really his first big breakthrough season at the highest of high levels. But he was 58 and 32 at the ATP level through age 19 and a half. And, you know, you look for Rafael Nadal similarly going into the start of the 2005 season. He was a little bit better than that. He was sitting at 47 and 30. Overall in ATP play now, you know, again, that season, that 2005 season is where things really begin to take off for Rafael Nadal. I mean, Alcaraz is right in the mix, or I guess I I was a year short there for Nadal. He was a little bit further. He had this Alcaraz season at age 19, but the point is like he's on that trajectory. You look for Carlos again, 126 and 33 overall since August, 2020, 83 and 26 in tour level matches during that stretch of time. He's winning 75% of his ATP matches as a teenager. And now he has a grand slam title as well. Now, again, as you look at Casper Ruud, who you see on our screen now, Casper 44 and 16 overall this year, you know, in terms of total wins on the ATP tour this season, that's third behind just Alcaraz and Tsitsipas. You look for him this season. He's, uh, I believe, 11 and seven against top 20 players. That's third best behind Alcaraz and Nadal in terms of most wins against top 20 opponents. He's 112 and 41, because I knew you were curious, David, winning 73% of his matches since August, 2020. I mean, he's a guy now. And if I were to ask you, because I was thinking about this. Who do you feel better about over the next five years coming off of this 2022 season? And it's a little hot takey, but who is more deserving of, I mean, of tier one, tier two status? If you're saying you're locks to be slam champions this decade, are you higher on Tsitsipas or Rude over the next five years? Oh, Rude. I mean, I it is, it's like recency bias, but I think we've also seen like about now going on two years of Sitsipas sort of, you know, 
really not know what to do with these opportunities. It's a little Madison Keysian, if I may make that uh, comparison. Very good comparison. Love it. Love it. Someone who is, you know, was a young hotshot talent, has made a lot of deep runs at Grand Slams, has other than really like one, you know, in the in the 2021 French Open final really has not played great in really any of them and is now flagging, you know, sort of um, spectacularly at these majors in the last couple of uh, the last season, basically since he reached that French Open final. So I I, I think that we're looking at trajectory. Rude is just on an exponential trajectory because the only thing that you could have said about Rude before the season was that he's never done it at a slam. And now he's done it at two slams on two different surfaces, you know, which is quite, I think that, again, from my from noted statistician Oleg, we were seeing quite a few, you know, uh, conversations that Rude was able to put himself in now that he's been able to make two Grand Slam finals on two different surfaces in the same season, you know, with your Ferreros, with your Federers, with your Nadal's players who are able to do this. Now, the question is, is he a Ferrero or is he a Federer? Is he someone who could rack up like the big tournaments or is he someone who's going to win one or two or one or none? Um, I was just very impressed. It just feels like he is getting the hard work is finally allowing him to play with the amount of confidence that is letting him then play his best tennis. I think, you know, for a while, he was just someone who was focused on the hard work and was just trying to be the best he could be. And now I think there's a part of him that kind of does believe he can be the best, you know, and I, or certainly compete with the best. And I think we saw that, you know, whether it was in the quarterfinals where he just destroyed Berrettini or the semifinals where he, you know, just weathered the storm against Heron Hachinov and um, played a great final. You know, there was until about 20 minutes till the end of that match. It really looked like Rude was going to take this final. And it was, the story was going to be, ah, uh, Carlos ran out of steam. Oh, what a shame. Played all those long matches and, you know, Rude just outplayed him in the key moments. I mean, he was, what he did so well in the final up until that third set tiebreaker was just make a lot of returns. I know we, I think he felt the same way and you mentioned it as well, not doing enough with the returns. I was just impressed he was getting them in. I mean, I'm still, I'm still relatively new to men's tennis and I know what we're talking about in terms <laughs> of like getting these big serves in. And I feel like, you know, he's getting them in, he's starting the rally and he was getting a lot of success just by starting the rally. And he even pulled off a really great return winner to get i think the second set point mm -hmm. the, the the set point itself was not as successful on the return but he was getting them in and he wasn't making a lot of errors i mean when you're playing that cleanly here you become very hard to beat you know and that's that's what took him into this final and what very nearly took him to his first slam and obviously we look at his opportunities on clay in the next couple of years you know i think he's there's an argument to be made that Alcaraz is a better hardcourt player than he is a clay court player because I just think that the surface mm -hmm. and the the faster conditions on hardcourts are really lending themselves better to Alcaraz's game even than than it does on clay and so I think that's going to make Rude you know a potential favorite for the the next couple of French Opens and now he's now that he's feeling more confident on hardcourts that that triples his chances with Australia and the U.S. Open so I think and he I think he feels very hard done by the fact that he wasn't able to play in Melbourne so I'm really curious to see what he does there and he's number two with two slams on his ranking. So we're really going to see where things shake out in the next couple of months. Yeah. Where I would disagree is a, imagine having to track down Alcaraz's forehand on the clay court because not everyone makes movement on clay. Well, I mean, your boyfriend, Alexander Zverev was able to do a pretty good job. of yeah, this. I but don't know. He's, I would say one of the five best movers on clay in the men's game. He's got the lane. Uh, we don't have to do this right now. Uh, she, is yeah. she is complicit. Ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Again, he has the length. That's the difference is it's just like at least he has the length to go reach for that ball to deal with the heavy. We don't have to. Again, we're not doing this right now. Um, Not that I don't want to do it right now. It's that we have other things to focus on, such as, again, you look for Rude 13 and three this year at the slams. He also was 13 and seven at the Masters semis in Canada, semis in Rome, finals in Miami. 
you know, he did that last season as well, where he made quarterfinals, I think, at all of the hard court Masters 1000 events, semifinals at the year end tour championships. And by the way, to make back to back finals tour end uh, championships before turning 24, I'm sure the list is fewer than 50 names of players who have done that over the course of ATP tour history. And it's a testament to the consistency of Rude over the past two seasons. And I agree, like, Rafa is uniquely suited, and I don't say that word uniquely lightly, uniquely suited to beat Casper Ruud because he can hit the lefty serve out wide to the Casper backhand. And while that backhand return has improved, if you attack it with elite lefty spin and get him stretched that far wide as Rafa can and have the lefty forehand to pick on it over and over again, you can take advantage of that Casper court positioning. I thought I mentioned the net point success for Carlos Alcaraz. That was the wrinkle. That was the issue is that sure you're making returns back in play, but you're ceding control of the point to Alcaraz, a player who is just too ruthlessly efficient. Now, again, best of the best. That's why Big picture, you're right. Rude's ability to make that many returns in play, it's a massive skill for him. Against the best of the best, it wasn't quite enough. And there had to be a different adjustment, I think, in his return uh, stance. Or just try something different. Throw a different look because ultimately, again, you give Carlos enough shots, he's going to break down that wall with his forehand. That said, and last point, and then I swear I'm going to let you talk, Kasparud has become an elite server. I'm curious if you see that as well. Certainly, you look at the numbers for Rude this season. He's holding 86.4% of the time. That's top 10 on the ATP Tour. The slice serve down the tee on the ad side, his ability to hit that pop there, I love. He loves to hit the slider out wide on the deuce as well. I think that's the thing you don't realize because he's not one of those 6'6 guys, but he's really he's ruthlessly efficient behind his first serve. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was it was funny to watch the uh, the coin toss and see Alcaraz and Rude back to back and have them not not have to deal with the one or more giants at the yes. net, which is crazy. Because <laughs> six foot six foot tall is not short. Let's like let's not have that revisionist history. But yeah, two six foot tall guys really. It feels like not tennis as it's meant to be played or tennis as we're as we're familiar with it, but just feels like we've had to deal with so many larger body shapes trying to contort themselves into traditional. Um, tennis strike zones that it's maybe perhaps a bit more aesthetic to see a certain you know height to height to strength to weight ratio kind of doing it um on these elite levels that's that's interpret that how you like but um (laughs) yeah no definitely he got he served quite well in those in those key matches really got himself out of trouble in a lot of those uh circumstances and yeah it you know it just came down for him it just comes down to how do you deal with the disappointment of missing out on those set points. He had been so good at shaking off the disappointment. And I think the only thing you could do is just say, listen, he's it's, it's like you have to use the strength as a weakness and just say, listen, this is a phenomenal guy. He's going to pull off some incredible miracle shots. I need to be able to stay focused and know that my, if I keep pressing, my chances will come. And that for some reason, after doing it so well until six all in the third, just went out the window on that tie break. And he just couldn't recover emotionally. And, but again, this is, pretty good growth, you know, from the first grand semifinal to the second one on a, on his lesser preferred surface played far better. And I think he even said he felt he was really proud with how he played and how he felt he was very much in the match. And, you know, again, looking ahead to Australia, I feel like that this is going to be, you know, a really close contender for this number one ranking, because I think we, we also now have to see how Alcaraz is going to deal with the pressure, deal with the accolades, deal with the success and all of that, because we've seen him, you know, 
we saw what happened after Madrid, to be quite frank. I mean, we saw that, the, you know, it took a while for him to really recover and become this, you know, uh, superstar at the U.S. Open that we were expecting to happen much sooner. So it's there's going to be there will be opportunities. It just will be important for this field to realize that those opportunities will be there and, and try to seize as many of them as they possibly can. Still have Paris then this year. We still will have those two or finals. And right now, Alcaraz, Nadal, Rude, and Tsitsipas, the four players who have qualified. You have Medvedev fifth, Rublev sixth, FAA seven, Zverev eight. We don't know if we'll see him again this season. Hercot's crazy to think that Tsitsipas is qualified. I mean, like, it's, I I guess, yeah, he won Monte Carlo, but I can't think of any. Second on the tour and wins. Like, he's Cincinnati final like in there as well. Quantity versus quality. I mean, which is so funny because that's the argument one used to make about Rude. I mean, talk about Rude like racking up quantity and now all of a sudden he's a two-time Grand Slam finalist. How the narrative shifts. That's what we enjoy here at Cracked Records. And again, I mean, let me ask you this. Is Sinner tier one or tier two in your mind? This will be our final men's question. Then I want to get to some fan questions. I think he would have been tier one if he'd beaten Alcaraz. <laughs> I think okay. if he was able to beat him at back-to-back slams, I think that would have been okay. This is someone who's really, you know, reclaiming his role as the, you know, the next elite young guy. And it didn't happen. But um, I think he's someone who's continuing to improve as well. Um, Eliminated from the conversation? Get... Officially, think... in your mind? I Felix, yeah. for me, is the one who's officially eliminated after this year. Yeah, Felix is out. But I think with Yannick, I think you could say maybe we'll give him another six months. Yeah, I amen. Till he turns mm-hmm. 22 in August. That's that's the metric. You got to get your first by the end of it, your age 21 year. If you do, you're still in the conversation. Obviously, metrics get a little harder as you get older. But Alcaraz still alive. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, at this point, what he's he's par with Nadal. Let me <laughs> so, ask you I mean... this. Who's more alive, Alcaraz or Iga? God, I mean, I think it's Alcaraz just because of the Ooh. way he's able to. I think yeah, it's Iga because of I just she's off to three already. And I've seen it on every surface the, uh, other than grass courts. But just that ability to be dominant like Alcaraz hasn't had his 37 match win streak moment yet. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll say that Alcaraz is his ceiling is just so high. Yeah, and he also true. seems to be surrounded by. um the I like greatest his t- of teams. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't, I mean, Juan Carlos Ferrero. I mean, he just seems like such a great head on his shoulders. He's really done such a great job of steering that, you know, Ega's situation is what it is. We'll say that. Let's yeah. just say that. Fair enough. All right. Well then with that in mind, again, Carlos Alcaraz, major champion, youngest world, number one, cast brewed up to number two in the live rankings for what it's worth. But we also took this opportunity, DK, to turn to the fans, our lovely Crack Rackets community who love you so. And we asked, you guys have any questions you'd like us to answer as we put a bow on the year's final major? Super producer Daniel Westoff going to bring those questions on the stream now. And thank you to everyone who did contribute. If you're watching live, feel free, free to throw any additional questions you may have. Uh, I will be honest, I don't have a look at the question. So Westoff, feel free to throw them up in whatever order you'd like. Let's start at question number one. This is from at Vamos Papi, um, who I happen to know. Hello, my friend. He asked, does Kyrgios need a good coach? You saw Tiafo make the leap with Wayne. You see Alcaraz with JC Ferrero. How important is a good solid mind in the corner? I'll let you answer first, DK. First of all, I, I told everyone I wasn't taking questions, but I, I guess I'll make the <laughs> exception. For you, for you and only you. But I think, I mean, Kyrgios is such a once, like, you know, one in a million situation where I feel like he's got, he's admitted it. He's very difficult to coach. I think he has somehow found, you know, a good 
alignment with the team, with the people around him. I don't know if he, you know, if he, maybe if he wants to take on a consultant, you know, someone who's like, can dip in and maybe do some, what's it called? Uh, scouting, like give some scouting sure. reports to be able to say like, you know, this is what you should expect from this next opponent. Maybe someone who can, you know, come in, you know, what I'm describing is not a coach. I'm just describing as like another element, you know, part-time element of the staff, whether someone who wants to come in mid-season and mix up with a training block, or maybe someone who, you know, a different kind of sports psychologist, you know, some, a new, you know, different kind of nutritionist. Maybe he's someone who needs that sort of like fluidity of different people coming through and giving different ideas. That way he can kind of take the best and not have to feel like he's being, um, talk, you know, like coached on, Controlled. like someone who, yeah, the, where it's more of a collaborative process. This yes. is where I'm I'm getting. I think he's someone who works better with people as opposed to someone working for him or, or feeling like he has to work for them. I think that that those dynamics have proven themselves not to be that healthy for him. You know, I think at this point, I wouldn't be asking the question about um, what Nick should change. I think the question is, can he keep this up? I think that, yeah. that's what I'm more worried about coming out of this US Open because he just felt so overwhelmed by the idea of having to like replicate this for October, November, December, January into the Australian Open. Just felt like he, you know, had put felt like his life into this uh this stretch of tournaments and to, and to come away with it with no slam and after feeling that that great sense of belief and for it to come up just short, feeling like, oh God, how am I gonna do this all again? But no, I I kind of don't think that a coach is the answer, or certainly a traditional coach. I agree. It's him. It's whatever he did to get this motivated this season, do it again next year. Like whatever it is that takes, you know, again, in theory, Andy Murray in his corner, just kind of being like, we're going to keep you on track. We're going to do this together. Someone he respects, but someone who he thinks he could work with. Sure. In theory, that person would be great, but he's had Leighton Hewitt on his side for a while as well now. And, you know, again, with all the tennis Australia stuff, I agree with you. It's whatever Nick wants. That's what's best for Nick's situation. I hope that answers your question, Poppy, and we appreciate it here uh, on our show. Let's move on to our next question now. And DK, this question comes from Facebook. How impactful was Djokovic's absence from the Open? Would there have been a different result? What are the players Gruskin has talked to saying about that? Will Novak play in all four slams in 2023? Um, well, I'm addressed in that question, so I suppose yeah, who, I who have you been texting for... about this, Gruskin? Yeah, you know, with Djokovic is usually the first text I ask all these players about. No, I do think there is a sentiment they would have liked him to play, and I think it's that the that there are inconsistent vaccination rules across the board on tour. Which, to go full circle again, something we've been talking about since January here on this show, DK either have a mandate or don't. Otherwise, you will have these sorts of inconsistencies where you can play in some places, can't play in others. Do I think he's going to play four slams in 2023? No, I don't think they're going to let him in Australia. I don't think immigration uh, immigration policy and vaccination status is going to change here in the United States. I don't think an exemption will be made. I would say the numbers too. Like for now, that's the number we know. Now, maybe he gets to three. Maybe the U.S. does waive that vaccination requirement by September of next year. I would say the over-under is probably two and a half, right, in terms of total slams that will play DK? First of all, I just don't know why we're having this conversation, to be honest, because if we were this asked. is, but no, but I mean, just for yeah. like the, 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 the Djokovic, Brush. you know, sort of like the asking Side of it, of it because all. I just yeah. feel like he said, this is what I, this is my decision. This is what I choose to do. And I accept the consequences of my decision. And so 
well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my actions. I mean, this is this is the risk that it runs. I mean, instead of having it be this sort of like 11th hour, is he going to get to play? Is he going to get to play? Well, you should know at this point where you're going to be allowed to play and where you're not. And I think, so I would hope that after doing this, you know, song and dance all through 2022, that he has a sense of where he is and is not allowed to play and will not be, you know, waiting with bated breath, you know, for an 11th hour reprieve at all of these tournaments, because I think, you know, he should, he himself, even just as a player and a person should know where he's going to play. And I don't know if he should be like hanging around maybe, and maybe that's, you know, something that he's just putting out there. Maybe he knows farther in advance that he will not in fact be going to some of these tournaments, but certainly the impression that was being given is, you know, I'm waiting, I'm seeing if I can play these tournaments. I mean, that can't be psychologically healthy either. If you're like, if it's a Thursday before the tournament, you're feeling like, am I going to get to play the US Open or not? I mean, what did it really come down to that in his own mind? I mean, I think he kind of had to know that the the odds were not great. And so given that, you, I think you, you proceed knowing that you're probably not going to play some of these tournaments. But I, I do wonder wh- which rules will change. I, I My understanding is that the government that was in place last year in Australia is not the same as the government that is currently in place. And they may make uh, the decision to, you know, whether whether it's to, because I think there is also like other situations that have to happen. It probably has to be. Um, well, isn't he banned for three years? Because exactly. Of I think immigration law. Yeah, yeah, I think that probably would need to be. It has to waive that, which is a whole then, exact. That yeah. would be why I don't think he plays Australia next year, because that's a whole thing. And even if it is a new government, no government acts that fast. Yeah, I mean, so we'll, but that's, he certainly has been acting as if, you know, and certainly the team and the fans have been acting like there is a way for these sorts of decisions to be made quickly enough that he could just be on a plane and whisked to these, to these tournaments. But I mean, as long as he chooses not to be vaccinated, that is, this is the consequence of that is that he will probably not get to play every single tournament that he wants to. And if he wants to play every single tournament that he, that he wants to, there is a way to do that, that the way that every other player has managed to do and he chooses not to. So that's that's why I feel like this is a sort of a silly conversation. And do I think that the tournament was different as a result of him not being there? I mean, he didn't get to play any warmups. I mean, granted, he well, no, he played the French Open. He played the clay court events. So, I mean, he did have some match play coming into Wimbledon. He would have come into the U.S. Open completely rusty, you know, assuming that he only would have been played, allowed to play the U.S. Open. And, you know, a lot of players played really good. I mean, he could have drawn Alcaraz and lost, you know, in, in whatever round that he lost. He could have even played TFO and, and and you know, lost. I mean, there were a lot of really inspired performances at this tournament. I mean, there was a big three guy in Rafa in this tournament, and he didn't make it to the, uh, to the quarterfinals. So, I mean, I think that that goes to show that the field is stepping up. It's not necessarily just them being absent and, you know, everybody taking over um, in response. So I think, um, Can I, I don't know this how this. Though? Had he been in the field, would you have picked him pre-tournament? Um, well, I picked Cam Nori, so I don't know if you should be asking me to pick anybody. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> I remember their draw preview. Yeah. <laughs> Someone who makes uh, Andre Rublev look like a mental giant. That's uh, not one of my, not one of my finer moments, but um, yeah, I think, um, I don't know. I mean, we don't know. And I don't yeah. really know if it's fair to even make that because at the same time, are we doing that at Wimbledon? I mean, yeah, sure. Djokovic, you won Wimbledon, but you know, would things be different? And Medved- so, yeah, it's true. Would, Gra- but you got to ask that question. Would, would if Medvedev had been in the draw, would things have been different? He was the number one player in the world. I mean, like that's I, you want to play oh, well, that game. We got to play that game. And also, there were no there were no ranking points on offer Wimbledon. Did that change everyone's mindset? I mean, did it did it affect how people played their matches because they felt like, oh, I don't. Does it really matter how hard I try for this? You know, I'm going to let that ball go. What difference does it make? I'm not going to gain any points from this tournament anyway. I mean, that certainly could have had an impact psychologically just collectively over the field. I mean, we want to play what ifs. We could play that all day. I mean, what if there'd been no pandemic? I mean, like, what if, like, let's just like, let's go all the way back. Well, I mean, 
so to answer the question on the flip side, to take the opposite position, yeah, of course it fucking matters. Sorry, last off slipped out. Yeah, of course it matters. Like he is a U.S. Open champion. He had won the previous Grand Slam. He has earned the benefit of the doubt in three of the five sets on a hard court until someone beats him. Uh, that said, you're absolutely right. Did how impactful was his absence? I don't know how impactful it was from the end result. If that's what you're asking, yeah, it was a little bit impactful. Um, but I, I mean, I think the collective response to this 2022 U.S. Open is it's one of the better majors we've had, certainly in the past five years, if not maybe even in the 21st century in this era of open tenant era of, you know, the pandemic era of open parity. It does feel like this was sort of where everything and all of the ingredients we've seen swirling around finally came together for the perfect recipe of a slam. Everything else, I'd echo your sentiment. So with that, I think we're ready to move on to our final. Oh, excuse me. Our penultimate question here. I got two more for you, DK, and then I'll let you go. Four questions. (laughs) Yeah. Penultimate here we go. 30 love DK leads for the uh, for the 40 love. And this comes from at Vamos Papi again. Shout out to him with Serena gone. How far are American women from coming back to top form? Is Osaka or Madison making a run? Does Sloan have anything left? I think there are a couple of questions mixed in here. Let's start yeah. with the American women first. Um, Pagula's three in the points race. Goff is four. Goff would be your tier two player. I think Amanda and Isimova, prior to injuries down the home stretch, it puts a cloud over what was otherwise clearly a step in the right direction for her in 2022. Let's not forget Sonia Kennan's not even 24 years old. And even if there's a lot that has to break right for her, she did make two Grand Slam finals in a single 2021 se- uh, 2020 season. Excuse me. Um, I don't think we're that far off would be my answer to segment number one. If you're American women's tennis fan, I think you still got keys lingering Sloan lingering Bernie P Bernarda Pera playing the best tennis of her career. I Shelby Rogers is probably playing the best tennis of her career. I don't think it's the best group on top DK, but I think it's a deep group. I think it's pretty solid. I'm like, I'm deeply offended that you didn't Manly. mention Danielle Collins. Brusk. Oh. I, was I mean, come I was on. I, I mean, gotta leave you sub name. Come on, as they as she says. I mean, she was looking <laughs> like my pick to win the US Open, but you know, heading into that second week, it looked like she really had what it took. She the way she, you know, beat Naomi Osaka, beat Alize Cornet, was up a set uh on Sabalenka, was really just looking like, you know, the class of the field. And you know, if you look at Collins, Goff, Pagula, I would say I guess in that order. I mean, obviously Goff is just it's that forehand with golf just makes it so difficult because in every other metric, she is number one. But I think if you're looking at the three, there's an argument to be made that Collins is probably the most complete just in, in terms of on like a higher Collins is like a better Pagula. Mm-hmm. is probably the best way to, because Collins, because Pagula is so all around great and Collins at her best, I think it's just slightly better because she has a bit more offensive firepower, just a bit more competitive grit that helps her over and has you know, already made a grand slam final. So with her and, you know, Grand Slam results wise, she and Goff are pretty much on level, level terms. But if Goff can fix that forehand, oh man, she could really be just the, really the class of the field. And to see that rivalry between Goff and Spiontek, I mean, we really didn't get, it really didn't do it justice in that French Open final just because that forehand is such a liability. But I think, yeah, if you're, if you're one of those people who just loves American tennis, then yeah, you should definitely be excited for this crop because I think we're going to see them a lot in second week's plus in grand slams over the next couple of years. 
Absolutely. All right. With that in mind, I've got a thought exercise for you before you go. And this is our question of the week here at Crack Rackets coming off of the 2022 U.S. Open. You look at the American men right now. There are a lot of good American men right now in the mix. And here are 10 names for you. Uh, And I'm going to ask you five years from now. Here's my question for everyone. Five years from now, which of these American men is ranked the highest? You've got Korda, Nakashima, Cressy, Tiafo, Wolf, Fritz, Paul, Opelka, Brooksby, and Shelton. David Kane, you see all these smiling faces on your screen. Hopefully that helps you remember the list of 10 I said. I asked Gil Gross this question. Do you want me to bias you and tell you his answer? Or do you want to answer this unimpugned? No, I'll go first. I mean, first of all, some of these names, including them, just feels mean. I mean, I guess because somebody <laughs> needs to be ranked 10th. No offense to Maxine Cressy or J.J. Wolf, who I love. I love J.J. Wolf. Um, I just, you know, if I think who's going to be the, the number one, I don't immediately think of most. I mean, mm, I have to say the way that Tommy Paul played this U.S. Open was very impressive to me. And in light of Taylor Fritz's collapse, abject collapse to um, Brandon Holt, who should have been ranked here. Where is he? Where's Brandon Holt on this list? I mean, rude. Some some Grand Slam blood running through his veins. That's that feels like an, a tremendous oversight, Westhoff. I'm very disappointed. But I mean, I think, I mean, I guess I really do think if it's between Fritz, Paul, and TFO. I mean, I just think the most all around. I mean, I guess you'd probably have to still say Fritz because I think just all around he's probably the best. He has the most experience going deep at slams at this point. He, you know, has won the big title, Indian Wells. Although it feels like the collectively the American men are always like down. Well, he won Indian Wells, but uh, it's not a slam. Like, don't even worry about it. Like, it's not a big deal. But I mean, that's pretty big. I mean, the Masters title be, did beat Nadal in the final, as you know, whatever whatever you want to say about Nadal's physicality in that final. Still, you know, man, he, there were there were rumors he wasn't even going to take the court because he was so injured. So I mean, I think. I think had it not been for this Brandon Holt defeat, I probably would have said Fritz without uh, without hesitation. But I think um, I was I also want to give big ups to Francis, who just is, you know, lightning in a bottle, just like box office. So entertaining, so endearing, so engaging, just really just talk about what to the extent that sports needs anybody or needs a person needs anything. He's certainly one of those players who really just makes the game better, uh, makes the game better to cover, makes the game better to watch. Just fantastic. Um, so him Fritz. And I, I really liked what Paul was able to do with the U S open back-to-back wins um, for the first time at the U S open, got a good one over Sebi Corda and then really gave rude, probably the toughest match leading up to the final. Um, I, I would say just ran out of gas in that fifth set. Can't play three straight five setters <laughs> at a grand slam. You're, I mean, unless you're Carlos Alcaraz, evidently. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, it, that's a tough uh, That's a tough physical order. But yeah, I think um, those would be my top. Oh, no. We may have lost DK for a second here. Super producer Daniel Westhoff. Oh, he's back. I hear him. Can you yeah. hear me? So, yeah, so I would say oh, my connection is unstable. No, I can hear you now, though. <laughs> like my personality. Um, I, Yeah, I would say, <laughs> yeah, some combination of Fritz, TFO, Paul, and then honorable mention to um, Sebi Quarter. I gave you four answers, but you also gave me 10 choices. So that's, that's where I'm going with that one. Well, there's the answer you oh, were looking for now on our screen. Brandon. My Holt man. On screen. <laughs> um, Gil went Corda. I went Corda as well. 
I didn't feel great about it. It's nice to see you still loyal to the 97, 98 crew, the OGs, as I call them. I made a strong case for Shelton just to poke and, you know, be the thorn in Gil's side. You made a really good case. That's why I want to ask all the smart people we have on this show, uh, because I think you'll get a different answer from each and every one of them. And that's the answer you get from David Kane. And with that said, hopefully we've answered all of your questions regarding this 2022 U.S. Open. A massive thank you to you, David, for helping us steer the ship here. Of course, we went double the length, I promised, which is probably expected for you uh, at this point. With that said, any final thoughts, any things you need to plug? No, I mean, you, you're all welcome to tune into my vacation, which started today and ends on Wednesday. It's going to be quite riveting. I plan to be doing as little as possible. I'm, I've restarted the first season of Real Housewives of Atlanta. So okay, if anyone good. wants to re- re- join me on that journey, if that's something that Westop wants to get involved in, we could start our own podcast and really give us going to run for his money. But otherwise, yeah, that's 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 so you're where I'm at. A text I, from Dalton Thieneman, Crack Racket CEO, in about 12 minutes being like, wait, were you serious about this? Because we could do it. Yeah, <laughs> I think at that point I need to get on the payroll. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> I, think I certainly at least need a hat. I, I got like yeah. I got to get something out of this arrangement. <laughs> oh, we cut the clip. That's yeah. what that's what goes on social media. No, uh, three day vacation, well deserved. Does that do you leave the island of of New York? Yeah, oh no! I'm, uh, yeah, no, you'll, I'm you'll here. Be. I'm. I'm pretty much. I was thinking of like a week, a three day weekend sort of vacation, but then I got word that I'm likely going to uh, Florida, not Florida, California, <laughs> California for a a week long corporate retreat, which is going to be part work, part vacation, and then leading up to um, my trip to Fort Worth. So it's going to be a busy couple of weeks for me. So I'm trying to re- recharge and recover where I can because it was. A busy U.S. Open, busy three weeks, doing a lot of content for Baseline. I mean, I was trying to look last year, like what I did last year versus this year. And it, in some ways, it felt like I didn't I didn't feel like I was working that much more, but I just was churning out so much more content on Baseline. So all those like fun little pithy uh, pop culture stories that you love to watch and love to consume, uh, including things like, remember Bianca Andreescu's dress? Remember that one? That was fun. <laughs> Not, blew us out of the water on, on, on baseline.com. That was fun. I like it. Are you Santa Monica for the retreat? Yeah. Wait, when? Uh, the 9th of October? Yeah. No, you're kidding. Wait. So I'm there September 25th through, I think, October like 9th. Uh, yeah, and I think I'm out the week. I had the same, yeah, the same Monday. conversation with my friend because she's supposed to be in California in October and uh, she's about to have her baby. And so uh, I said, Oh wait, no, you're going to, you're not going to be here till November. Uh, I like, yeah, I, I was like, Oh, we got to like get dinner. Oh wait, you're not even going to be here. So well, whatever. I'm hoping, anything. I'll be there till Monday, October 10th. So by the way, my birthday's that sixth. I was, I told Gil on our previous show, I was like, dude, I think you're going to have to go out with me. Like, I'm sorry, my friend, but Gil and Gruss can take the town. It's a two part crack rackets video extraordinaire. Um, be, that's be two wild and crazy guy brows. Yeah. Oh <laughs> you guys had hamburger and fries. Um, no, yeah, it, it'll, it'll be a good time. But with that said, David Kane, you are always exceptional. We appreciate you taking the time. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel West up on the ones and twos. Heck of an editing job to do. Shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, David Kane, for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, the amazing David Kane, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a hint. It is a mini break podcast. Oh, that was the break. <laughs> and there, well, it was an extended break, perhaps in this edition, but we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you as always, my friend.
Bye. <laughs>